This recording is from Fintech Nexus USA, formerly known as London Fintech USA, held at the Javits Center in New York City on May 25th to 26th, 2022. It's from the track Data, Fraud, and the Future of Identity, sponsored by Prove and is titled The Different Paths to Catching Synthetic ID Fraud. Speaking on this session are Albert Rue from Unfido, Ahran Jaminder from HSBC, Naftali Harris from Centrelink, Alex Constantino from Imprint, with moderator David Eric from AIR. Good morning. Uh, we have a really interesting panel lineup for you today, and we're going to be really talking uh, about digital ID and the uh, problems with fraud that are impact impacting digital ID that we're uh, seeing today. Um, what we're beginning to look at is, or beginning to see more broadly across the entire industry, is, is, is greater interest in and acceptance of digital ID. It's been percolating internationally. If you're familiar with the efforts that India has done to actually offer digital ID for all of their citizens, it's been really critical for uh, building financial inclusion, for being able to establish bank accounts for each and every Indian, which was critical in the uh, COVID crisis in terms of being able to deliver support, emergency support for folks. Uh, you've also seen uh, digital ID begin to emerge here in the U.S. In fact, uh, FinCEN and the FDIC just recently did a tech sprint uh, on digital ID uh, with the recognition that digital ID is really uh, critical for uh, the ability to track money laundering and the ability to, uh, to stop fraud. Uh, and that's what we have here today. We've got a selection of folks that come from the uh, the anti-money laundering and anti-fraud world that are focusing in on different kinds of, of issues that uh, are are important for digital ID. And so, from that perspective, we're gonna we're gonna kick off today. My name is David Eric. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Air, the Alliance for Innovative Regulation. What we do is uh, work with regulators to help them embrace technology. So we uh, uh, evangelize the use of text prints, and we also help regulators learn about new technologies uh, like digital ID, like crypto, like uh, cash flow underwriting, and the, and the like. Uh, but passing the baton on, Alex, why don't you introduce yourself, and then each of us will take a minute and give you a sense of who we are. Thanks, David. Uh, Alex Constantino, currently work at Imprint, a modern co-branded issuing platform. Uh, past life for to pedal that David didn't say that he co-founded, but he did. Um, worked in sort of the risk and fraud function there, uh, and then previously J.P. Morgan doing cybersecurity and, and fraud and risk in multiple businesses there. Um, hi, so uh, Aaron and I head up a team in HSBC, uh, looking at how we as an organization uh, work with more third-party companies and more fintechs, and how we uh, um, embrace this space for our customers. But I also uh, focus predominantly on our digital identity platform. I'm Albert Roux. I'm a VP of uh, Product Fraud for Onfido. So we are a company to help our customer verify the identity of our users. And uh, I come from AdTech. Actually, I joined uh, FinTech uh, just a couple of years ago. And um, we, uh, we're here to provide some information about uh, how to combat synthetic fraud. Cool. Hi, everybody. I'm Naftali Harris. I'm Sentinelink's co-founder and CEO. We work with over 100 banks, FinTechs, um, and other sorts of lenders and financial institutions to stop fraud at the point of account opening. So synthetic fraud, ID theft, uh, stuff like that. And then before Centrelink, I was the first data scientist at uh, a firm. And this is the only audience where no one's like, which firm? Um, <laughs> um, where uh, I got smacked by synthetic fraud right in the face, leading us to start Centrelink. Uh, which is uh, really interesting. Thank you all for your quick introductions. 
Um, Naftali, why don't you just set the stage for us? You know, like, what is the problem that we're trying to fight here? If you could define the contours here. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when people say synthetic fraud, uh, it's become pretty buzzwordy and it means a lot of things to different people. Um, so I like to just level set by how uh, I define it, at least. Um, a synthetic identity is a person that doesn't exist or more precisely a name, date of birth and social security number that doesn't all belong to the same cohesive real person. Um, within that, there's a couple of important subcategories, uh, one of which is what we call a third-party synthetic identity. Um, so this is a completely fabricated individual. The name, date of birth, and social uh, really don't match to any uh, sort of individual. It's, it's really made up. Um, and there's also an important thing, and um, a lot of people don't really realize this or talk about it much, um, but what we call a first-party synthetic identity. Um, this is actually more common than third-party synthetic uh, fraud. Um, but a first-party synthetic identity is someone who uses aspects of their own identity with aspects that are made up, usually using their true name and date of birth, but a social security number that doesn't actually belong to them. And they're doing that in order to uh, essentially re repair their credit. Um, so that's how, at least how we think about synthetic fraud, um, although I know it's a term that a lot of people are interested in, uh, a topic that a lot of people have uh, some good ideas about. And, and I think in this era of sanctions, you're also starting to see people who are on the sanction list. Uh, who are trying to recreate their identity. No, it's absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do if you make up a fake person. You know, there's a, you know, even for money laundering, there's a $10,000, as we all know, the, the CTR rule is $10,000 limit and you have to report it. You know, very easy to make up a bunch of synthetic identities and use that to push a lot of money through, you know, if you're on the sanctions list or you're doing something nefarious uh, to get the funds to begin with. And um, Alex, why don't you tell us how this generates a problem? Like, well, like when you were at Petal and where you are now at Imprint, you know, what is the impact of this? How does it actually demonstrate itself? Yeah, thanks, dude. Um, I think no matter where you are in kind of the, the fintech or financial service industry, it affects you in some way, sometimes a lot earlier than others. But sort of the food chain is, uh, you know, apply for credit that you're going to get declined. And then, you know, there's plenty of fintech companies now that are doing, you know, unsecured credit at $500 a line, get you in. And then, you know, these first synthetic IDs and fraudsters essentially groom identities, making themselves, you know, you go from $500 line to fintech to $10,000 at a large issuer. All of a sudden you have $100,000 and you're a good customer. You're paying your bills. You're, you're building your credit score. You're kind of just sleeper. You're honestly probably some of the best customers that a fintech would actually understand. But, um, and then eventually you start, you know, moving transactions through uh, a fake business where you're doctoring paperwork and, and, and sort of business. And then you go hit an SMB lender and you turn a uh, synthetic identity that initially had a uh, $500 or $1,000 credit limit into a half a million dollars in outstanding exposure. And then, you know, six or eight months later, you go kaboom, and then everyone's left out to dry. Large issuers, fintechs, small business lenders, uh, real estate um, across the board. And so it, it affects everyone. Uh, you know, like at, at Pedal, we were kind of the, the early day, like, you know, you apply for, you apply for a, a line, um, and we loved you because you know, you're spending money, you're paying your bills, um, we're helping you build your credit score, and then all of a sudden, six months later, you're the worst customer, um, and then you default, and we have to charge you off. So uh, yeah, it's affecting the entire industry. Um, obviously, you know, young fintechs like me, um, you know, the loss is, is a little bit lower than a large issuer or a small SMB lender who's giving you $500,000 to you know, buy another limo for your fake limo company. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy out there. And, and I never knew that you were a fintech. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's fascinating, right? Because a lot of these technologies are being developed for the purpose of expanding credit access, right? And then being able to expand safe and affordable pricing on credit access. 
Uh, and yet what we're beginning to see is how the fraudsters are taking those new technologies and uh, and using them for nefarious purposes. And you see that across the board, right? We see that with crypto. We see that in other products where, uh, you know, the creation of the product itself is actually a really interesting innovation. But part of what we have to do is understand the fraud and the risk that's associated with those new innovations uh, and try to head that off as soon as we can. Um, Aaron, this is... Oh, yeah, I was going to, yeah, just um, on that point, David, one of the things that's really interesting about this is, you know, when you think about financial inclusion, um, a lot of the sort of underserved populations for in financial services are things like young people, uh, immigrants, the underbanked, um, these sorts of populations. And, you know, when we think about including these people, one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that in order to actually do that well, uh, and it's going to sound crazy, um, you actually have to do a really good job of fighting synthetic fraud in particular, um, because those populations often look like synthetic identities. You know, if you're like, hey, what is this person doing, this identity that has no history before 2021, and, uh, you know, they're 35 years old, that seems really weird. And, you know, a lot of banks would say, hey, this is probably a synthetic identity, let's decline them. No, that person might be an immigrant that just came to the United States at uh, 34 uh, last year. Um, and so I think, you know, it's interesting, like we think about this financial inclusion in a completely different way than we think about fraud. And, but actually, those two things are inextricably linked. Right. And understanding them and being able to distinguish between them is really critical path for, for our financial services industry. Uh, Aaron, you've mentioned that this is a really massive concern and being a representative from a large bank, you yeah. know, how does this impact your thinking? I think it's, you know, the, the path that we're on, and I think the path that every single big bank is on, is how do we start digitizing a scale? How do we start making our services accessible to anybody who wants them? I mean, I mentioned earlier today that, you know, no one wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, you know it'll be a cool thing to I'm going to open a bank account. That's exciting. <laughs> um, you know, no one, everyone, you know, the, the onboarding process and the checking and the validation process is getting in the way of the ultimate goal of what people want, which is to interact with their bank and, and get the support that their bank provides them. And, and you, know, you know, to be a large bank, you have to have a certain level of risk acceptance. You have to go down the path of, you know, if I'm going to offer a really great seamless digital experience, I have to accept that you know, a percentage of those customers onboarding are going to be fraudsters, are going to try and and and, and find a way to, to to cheat the system. But um, you know, as as Natalie mentioned now, from HSBC's perspective, we have a massive amount of new to country customers. So in every single market we operate in, there's a very high percentage of our new to bank customers every year that are new to country, and. So the challenge we face of somebody who has no credit bureau file whatsoever, um, who is completely unknown to, to this country, but is coming to us with a very open like a bank account, please. And, and you know, the, the ability that we need to, to verify that person is genuine is, is massive. And, and Aaron, as a follow-up question, you know, with, like internally at a large bank, you know, like what, what challenges do you face in terms of trying to generate support, both, you know, financial support for investment and also awareness internally at the bank? So, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it, it's something everyone's always aware of. Everyone's constantly in that place of, you know, this, this is a challenge we have to face. I mean, the, the, the running joke is if you want zero fraud, then have zero customers. So the moment you accept one customer through the door, you are now accepting that fraud can happen. Um, so, you know, we take it very, very seriously. It's not something that is, that is, you know, seen as, as, as lighthearted. Um, but at the same time, we always have to find that, that right balance between it. So there's, there's a lot of investment we're making. We're looking at how we are, um, rolling out digital identity services towards being able to, to 
allow us that ability to verify customers without them needing to go into a branch. Um, but even that idea of saying to somebody, right, I need you to go to a, to a building somewhere that in some of our markets could be a flight away um, so that you can sit in front of somebody and verify your identity with somebody who, who may never have seen that type of ID document before. I mean, it, it, it feels like it's a broken system. So the ability of now starting to work with companies like Confido, for example, that are that are doing really great, you know, you know, pioneering that that process of how I can verify this particular document that's being presented to me as a genuine one. That that that's mine completely shifting the the, the, the landscape for us today. And um, I think we were supposed to be able to take questions. Is there a I I'm, I'm not seeing anything on the screen, but um, to the degree that any of you have questions, you know, this is absolutely an interactive panel. So please feel free to uh, either raise your hand or. Yeah, I feel like you guys can just raise your hand. But if you go on Slido.com, the uh, password is our sponsor, Proof, and you'll be able to ask questions there. And I'll see what's going on with that. But if anyone has questions, you also could just. Please. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that uh, some people on sanction lists are trying to recreate their identity. Could you expand on that? Have there been any notable instances? Um, are there services popping up to try to help people to do that? I mean, and how you know how are you able to uh, block that? I mean, just if you could expand on that emerging problem. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, one thing a lot of people don't realize is just how easy it is to commit this uh, sort of fraud. Um, and so to answer your question, there are services that allow you to do this. Um, there are online tutorials um, that show you how to do this. Yeah, actually, for anyone in the audience, um, go on YouTube and um, search for CPN, uh, which stands for credit privacy number, uh, which supposedly is a nine digit number that um, uh, you use in place of your social security number to protect your privacy or something, 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 something. Um, it's pretty much how they phrase it. That's a verbatim quote. Um, and, uh, you know, what you'll find if you search that is a lot of people literally explaining how you commit synthetic fraud. And so while I've not seen any sort of, um, you know, hey, are you on the sanctions list? Click here and we can get you a new identity. <laughs> um, you will find quite a bit of tutorials about this online. Um, it's incredibly simple to do. I mean, really, literally all you have to do, don't go and do this. Um, but literally, all you have to do is actually make up a nine-digit number. Um, as Alex said, start applying for credit with it, and um, you know eventually the bureaus will create credit reports for you, and um, you'll be off to the races. Yeah, it's amazing how it scales. Aaron, what did so you? I, have to I, I mean, I was going to say something that that, that we forget about is um, if your name is not in English or is not in Latin characters. So if you have a name that is in Hebrew or in Arabic or in Cyrillic. Um, when you apply for a bank account in, in the US or the UK, for example, you're going to put in the, the English translation of your name. So, I mean, there was a, there was a demo that we saw of um, the late Muammar Gaddafi, who was the, the former leader of Libya. And his name could be written in 27 different ways in English. So you're now thinking of 27 different names that appear on a sanctions list. And you're not actually doing anything. You're just using a different variation of how I spell my name. And that just happens to not be... On a sanctions list. So like for us in particular, we're now starting to think about, well, you can change your name, you can't change your face. So can we start building networks of people on the sanctions list that we hold your, your facial biometric? So when you come in to open up a bank account, well, we're going to check. 
and your name might not appear on a sanctions list, but but your face looks some, like like somebody who's who's on a sanctions list, and that gives us that reassurance to go well. It's not foolproof; nothing ever is, but it's taking us that one step further of how we can start to to, to combat this. But yeah, as, as Natalie said, it's it's painfully easy. <laughs> and Albert Anfido has a fraud lab. You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing? Yeah, exactly. So now the frosts are evolving quite a bit, actually. So they became very sophisticated. So Onfido started a, a fraud lab where uh, Onfido verifies document biometrics and also other means of verification for uh, our clients. And what we've seen recently is um, the, the fraudsters in the past, they would take a document, a picture of a document, they will modify it slightly with maybe changing the birth uh, date of birth, for example, or the first name or last name. But now they are getting very sophisticated uh, on the documents. They are able to generate documents uh, using machine learning. Uh, and all the information that they, they, they use to build that synthetic identity come from various uh, means. So data breach is one of them. So they'll take a social security number from one person, uh, a name from another, and then now they're doing on the biometric side. So 12 months ago, you would ask, ask me, have you seen biometric synthetic fraud? In, in real life, I was like, eh, not really, or at least one or two instances, but now we're really seeing uh, really frequently. So we built a fraud lab to replicate what the fraudsters are doing. So we were able to actually generate a full US passport, including your, your synthetic identity of a person that never existed. And the passport can probably bypass a lot of uh, security features on, on, on the fraud vendors right now. And how much does that cost? <laughs> well, uh, on the open market, on the dark market, is about eighty dollars for a driver license from the US. Uh, you can buy a template uh, for Photoshop template. We can auto generate actually the document for fifteen dollars. And uh, if you want a real passport, a physical one is about two thousand dollars right now, and it's very good. Um, you can buy them in China. There's, all you have to do, um, you can go on Instagram and buy them there, and they're very good quality. Um, so the idea is to import them, right? I mean, what we do is we, for example, we uh, we replicate exactly what the first to do. We develop a software that we can import this template and it can actually generate um, 100,000 passports in two minutes. We're both radicalizing this entire audience here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's scary. But the good news is we are building data sets uh, to actually train our machine learning model to actually catch those, those type of fraud. So the synthetic fraud is caught today. On the document, biometric, I think the fraudsters, they, I mean, on, on a 2D picture, so a single uh, a selfie, they're able to do that okay right now. We can still catch them. On the video, they're not there yet. So video re, um, requires a lot of computing power and knowledge. So I don't know if you went to YouTube and see that video of a fake Tom Cruise. Um, it's, it's a pretty famous video. It's pretty fun to watch. It was an actor who, who has the same haircut as Tom Cruise. I think in real life, he looks slightly different. But they, 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 put a, they put a deep fake on his face, and, and it's pretty uh, realistic. So they're not there yet, but the technology is developing so quickly that in probably, probably two years, they are going to get very close to the real human. So, for example, a software we develop in-house can recreate um, lightning conditions. Uh, we can put you in any room next to a window or not and present a passport uh, a hand holding it. And uh, we can bypass a lot of uh, security features uh, like this. Not too scary, but <laughs> but yeah, it is scary, and we should be scared, and we should be aware of of what these trends are because we have to get out in front of it. And it's not just uh, us as providers of financial services, but also the regulators as well, right? Just consider that. Consider what you've heard here that a passport, a fake passport, costs two thousand dollars. 
Like that is remarkable. That even surprises me. And we're not even touching on the, and again, I won't name countries, but you will have, you know, rogue nations that will have people on sanctions lists who are members of that country's government. Um, when you are the government who is issuing the document, getting new documents for certain people might not be that, that difficult a thing to do. So you're not talking about someone who is fairly famous, but, you know, it's not just presidents of countries that are put on sanctions lists. It's very high numbers of people. These are the people who are not recognized, who don't, you know, you, you won't spot them in a crowd. And what's stopping them from just getting another ID issued by their government? And it's not a fake. It's not something. It's a genuine ID. I think we have a question from the audience. Yeah, we, we have a question from the audience. And actually, I feel like you guys have touched on it already a little bit with the passports. Um, but the question says, some fraudsters use legitimate full information and apply for loans. Any thoughts on how the industry can collaborate and flag stolen identities to mi mitigate this risk and this misuse of stolen um, stolen identities? So I feel like you've touched on it. But Albert, don't you have a point of view about the industry sharing data? Yeah, I think it has to come down to, uh, I mean, I come from a tech where we build fraud consortium where we share data. So I, I work at Microsoft on uh, being search engine for about 10 years uh, on bot detection. And we used to regularly uh, exchange information with Google, Facebook, Yahoo. We had common blacklists, right? And when I came to FinTech, I was a little bit surprised that this concept does not exist. Actually, it would work for the benefit of everyone. So uh, Aaron mentioned uh, persons that uh, are on the sanction list they can change all their names and everything, but the biometric is very hard to change. That, I mean, there's privacy issues around biometrics, of course, that you have to take into account, but there's a lot of information that can be shared across the industry, across fraud vendors, uh, even across the industry that would benefit from catching those, those fraudsters, because a lot of them will, uh, will be repeat offenders, right? They will uh, create 10,000 different identities, attack one for us, it's mostly crypto uh, marketplace that sees that type of fraud or, or large banks. And then they will attack the next one and over and over. They will reuse the same data. So fraudsters are lazy by nature. And, and I know this. I was a fraudster in, a, in a past <laughs> life. So 30 years ago. So it's, uh, it's fine now. But essentially, you want to reuse the same data because you want to go quick, cash in, take your money out, and disappear, right? So you want to use the same data as much as possible. And having a fraud consortium where we can share openly that type of information to combat fraud would be really key, right? I think there's some big challenge. Like, I, I completely um, see the the vision of the consortium, and I, I think we'll actually get there eventually. But I think there's some important challenges associated with doing that. That because um, a natural question is like, why haven't we already done this? It seems supernatural. It's like, hey, this bank has fraud. This bank also has fraud. You guys should talk. Um, and, and I think that's true. And you know that happens informally. But one of the the there's a couple of big challenges here. And one of them is I think the uh, different organizations view fraud differently. You know, that's, that's even why I wanted to lead off by just defining how we view synthetic fraud. Um, and different organizations care about different things. And so, you know, sometimes what you'll find is that one organization's definition of fraud, like, does not coincide at all <laughs> uh, with another organization's uh, point of view on fraud. And you'll also find that some teams at different organizations have, uh, you know, er everyone in this room is great, but, you know, in that room over there, you know, they may not know what they're doing. And, um, you know, you, you end up with this um, sort of uh, inconsistencies across organizations that makes it a little bit um, challenging. One other thing I think that's important too, and um, David, this goes kind of to some of your earlier point about inclusion is, um, um, you know, if you really do this, there has to be some kind of way for the consumer to get off of that list. You know, this can't just be some like, you know, private 
you know, like blacklist and it's like you're on there and it's like you're done, you know, um, because people do make mistakes. Uh, and, uh, you know, if someone's put on there accidentally or they actually weren't uh, stealing an identity or committing synthetic fraud or something else, um, you know, they need some way to be able to prove that and, and get out of jail, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think we'll get there as an industry, but I think there's actually a, a it's not as close as, as we would think. I think there's actually quite a bit of work we need to do to make that happen. Yeah, the issue of false positives is really critical because, you know, uh, I think m- many of us have had friends that have common names that are on the OFAC list. <laughs> I have a super funny story about this, actually. Do you mind? Yeah, so um, I mentioned I was early at uh, a firm. I was the first data scientist there, and I was put in charge of the decisioning systems. So it was. I was 22 years old. I just dropped out of grad school. And I was in charge of deciding who would get approved or declined for loans, which was way more responsibility than I deserved. Um, so uh, one day we hired our first lawyer, um, a gentleman named um, Manny Alvarez from the CFPB. And Manny's gone on to do great things. He was um, head of basically California's CFPB afterwards, an incredible, incredible gifted uh, legal mind and executive. And on his first day at a firm, he applies for an affirm loan, which is great. I'm like, wow, congrats. Like, I joined this company. I'm going to check it out. And the system that I had built rejected him. And so Manny and everyone on the exec team comes over to my desk and is like, Naftali, like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. And I go and I take a look. And yeah, it's because there's a Manuel Alvarez on the OFAC list. And, you know, our Manny Alvarez is not international drug trafficker, you know, from Colombia, uh, Manuel Alvarez. But, you know, it was the, the same name. And so there was a hit there. And so false positives are, uh, I mean, we're all familiar with them. They happen all the time. They're an important thing uh, to, to be aware of and to be able to deal with. Um, but I think the, you know, in that case, the treatment strategy was everyone comes to my desk and yells at me. <laughs> but you know, for a consumer that doesn't have that ability to, to do that, I think it's important that there's a way for them to prove who they are. And, and so that's why you started Sedgy Lake? Yeah, not exactly, but uh, <laughs> it was motivational. Um, uh, do we have any more questions? Uh, not on Slido. Does anyone right. have any questions? Any other um, questions from the audience? No? As we continue, please just raise your hand. We're happy to uh, yeah. engage. Um, uh, you know, I think that, uh, Alex, you probably, you know, see this on the front lines, you know, and, you know, what are, what are some more stories that you have to share with us? Yeah, I think the, the other side of it of being like a young fintech is getting back to the point of like data sharing and some sort of consortium is, the people who are going to do something about it, law enforcement agencies or any of the government agencies, you know, a young fintech who just lost a million bucks, probably willing to raise their hand and be like, can you help us, please? But a large bank doesn't want to go on the record and say, hey, we just got slapped with a synthetic ID ring and lost you know, $15 million. And so, but if you approach like the FBI or Secret Service, they're going to turn around and tell you, well, we don't know what the impact of the rest of the market is. So you're just going to have to sit back and wait. And if you know, Aaron and Albert and other the other issuers don't like raise their hand and say that same person took me for ten million. That same person took them for thirty. To where you can actually size the market against it, they're not going to get over like out of bed over a young fintech who has a bunch of equity from a VC firm who just lost a million bucks. They're going to you know actually market or size the market and say, okay, you know the U.S. consumer lending business just got slapped in the last quarter for one hundred fifty million dollars. We should probably think about going after where these identities are coming from and, and sort of the source. You know, it's interesting that, that again, it, it, it comes down to, unfortunately, sometimes the regulators steering us in, in one direction or the next. But I know, for example, in the UK, if you are subjected to fraud in any way, you have to publicize, you know, publicize that. You have to make everyone aware to avoid that exact issue of you know, every single individual banking organization 
suffering from probably the exact same fraud ring for various amounts. Um, and no one knows about it. No one's talking to each other. So now you're all forced to admit it. You're all forced to go, hey, by the way, this is happening. And what it does is for a large organization like ourselves, we have an absolute, I mean, we'll have a, a fraud acceptance level, but we have a zero tolerance policy to fraud. There is never, ever an excuse for us to go, well, you know, there's, there's some reason why this has happened. It, it's just an absolute no-go for us. And I mean, we work with, with all the various markets we're in. And again, it's, it's market by market. There is no such thing as a, a global fraud list or blacklist that you're on. So every country that we, almost every country we operate in will have various degrees of, of what's available to them. And, and yeah, the, the problem that you then have is you don't want to be the first bank on the list. So you don't want to be the, the first guy to go, I've spotted this. Everyone else benefits from it. Great. But you still don't want to be the first guy on the list. And so there's a real role for regulation here in order to kind of set the guardrails and to kind of set the ground rules, you know, to try to stimulate uh, the kind of activity that we that we want to to have. You know, there's a really important parallel here with AML, right? So when SARS get filed, SARS are by definition private and uh, banks are not allowed to talk about uh, the investigations that they're doing. And so one of the uh, exceptions that we have in the U.S. is the uh, 314B clause, which allows banks to share information, but there isn't really secure ways of doing that, right? So this has spurned a whole um, set of investigations by the Financial Conduct Authority in the U.K. and also by U.S. regulators on privacy-enhancing technologies. How can you use different kinds of technologies to more easily and effectively share data without disclosing the privacy that's in, in, in embedded in that data? You know, I think we have another question. Yeah, we've got five minutes left, but we've got one more question. And it's, uh, can you comment on ignorant consumers who fall victim to CPNs, sort of accidental fraudsters? Wow, it depends on what yeah. an ignorant consumer is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can comment on that. It's um, incredibly sad and despicable that people do this to consumers. Uh, that would be the, the short comment. Um, so for everyone else's context, I mean, uh, you know, consumers... Uh, some people know what they're doing and they make up fake socials and they make up fake identities and they go and try to steal money uh, from banks, lenders and financial institutions. Um, and uh, for the record, they should also all go to jail. Um, but there's uh, there are consumers who are tricked into doing the same thing. And, you know, they think that there is such a thing as a CPN and that's a real concept. And they're tricked into doing this by, you know, I mentioned some of those online tutorials, but there's even... If you believe the chutzpah of this, there's organizations that uh, will actually sell CPNs, which is literally selling a nine-digit number. Like, I bet all of us could come up with a nine-digit number in this room. And so not only will they trick consumers into doing this, but they'll actually sell to, cons like, they'll make the consumer actually pay to trick the consumer into committing different kinds of, uh, of fraud. Um, you know, it's this will be, like, sort of, like, the, the super shady side of, like, the credit repair in industry. Um, that would be doing this, but um, yeah, it, it's a shame. The consumer is a is a victim and actually tricked into committing different kinds of financial crimes. It's truly despicable. I think we're seeing from our side the rise of scams on consumers is 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 starting to increase, um, and it, it, it's the natural flow of things. As you start to block other forms of fraud, this is this is a bit that's the, the that's left exposed, and and it's the same thing. It's it's the most vulnerable in society that seems to be you know, the ones who are targeted. And I mean, we've seen there are, there are massive organizations of, of thousands of people in different countries that are, that are running these scams, that are running these frauds on people. And it's, 
I mean, you know, again, there was a story in the UK just before I, I came to the US of you know, a lady in her 80s who was contacted by somebody who's saying, well, we need your help to, you know, you're going to work with the police and you're going to help us try and crack this fraud ring. And someone's going to come to your house and collect the money from you that you've got to withdraw from your bank account so that we can make sure that, that the fraudsters aren't going to get it. And, you know, it, it, it's these stories that are coming through that are, that are terrifying. And it is, it is very much, as, as you said, the, the most vulnerable in society that are, you know, the most likely to fall victim. But we're seeing people who work in banks, who work in fraud. One of, one of the guys in our fraud team fell victim to this, to a very, very sophisticated scam attempt. So it's any single person in this room could, could fall victim to it. And it, it happens so easily. And the worst part is, if it's a small amount of money, people will stay quiet because they're so embarrassed and so ashamed of the fact that they got caught that they'd rather just not say anything. Like, you know, somebody who, you know, someone calls up and says, hey, it looks like, you know, someone's just spent $250 on your Amazon account. You know, let's help you figure that out. You're going, what, what, what's happening? This is crazy. You immediately go into fight or flight mode. You, your, your brain thinks totally differently and you go, right, I have to stop this. And before you realize that, oh, actually, yeah, I've, I've just been scammed like a thousand bucks. And, you know, if you can afford it, you'll stay quiet because I can't, I can't tell people that this has happened to me. I feel like an idiot. So, uh, you know, we're, we're basically facing kind of, you know, a, a new, a new, a new technological future, right? You know, like what is the role of digital ID and what does it do that really helps us? What does it do that, uh, in, that actually starts to incent fraud and what can we do about it? So lightning round for the panelists, what is the most important thing that we can do to fight digital ID and fraud that's associated with it? Starting with Alex. Data sharing. <laughs> God, that, yeah, I mean the one word answer that. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, for me, it's it, it's better ways to, to verify customers' identity in a robust way, in a and and, and digitally. I'll say the same thing that are sharing. I think is key, uh, but I think it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. Um, we talk about uh, you know blacklist, for example, or reputation list, and they are kind of like a two-dimensional because it's really on one dimension. We're going to blacklist maybe your your uh, document ID number or your maybe your IP address or things like this, right? But in reality, it needs to be three-dimensional. It needs to be a combination of things together. So, for example, imagine where you can combine a document number. Uh, maybe a device ID that you use frequently to better identify you to, to avoid false positive because the danger of having a reputation list is actually have genuine people which identity was stolen and suddenly they cannot apply for a loan or a mortgage or, or a car payment uh, even to, to, to happen. So this is important to have. So it needs to be three-dimensional and it needs to be in partnership with governments. So it's like a new generation of multi-factor. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Naftali? Yeah, I'll go a slightly different direction here. I think it's following the fraudsters. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, they've done stuff, they've done things that none of us would have guessed. And I think over the next five years, they'll come up with other creative and nasty ideas of ways to commit fraud and cause damage to society. And, you know, I, I can't honestly be sitting here and say, oh, yeah, like in three years, they're going to do X and, you know, five years, they'll do Y or something like that. Um, I think you have to just follow them and keep track of what they're actually doing and review cases and, um, you know, go on the dark web and see what they're actually up to so we can stay a step ahead of them because they're extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, creative and, um, you know, who knows what they'll do next. So wrapping up, we've got oh, one last question. Yeah, quick question. Where do you guys, what industries do you think uh, synthetic fraud is 
it's it's a lot of places. Um, we see it in um, unsecured consumer of different sorts. So um, unsecured consumer loans, uh, purchase finance, BNPLs, uh, credit cards, stuff like that. Um, you also see it quite a bit in auto lending, um, actually. Um, that's mostly the first party uh, synthetic fraud variety. Um, you see a little bit in checking savings accounts, largely related to you know evading uh, sanctions lists or money laundering or um, things of that nature. Um, a little bit in mortgages, not quite as much as you would uh, as you'd see in the other sort of areas. Oh, and then it's huge in um, subprime as well. So I'm just going to take a minute and place this whole conversation in the context of technology innovation. Right, we're facing in this entire industry all kinds of technology innovation which has tremendous value for good, and it also has tremendous risk that's associated with it. And I think all of our jobs as members of this industry, along with the regulators, is to really be very balanced and careful as we assess new technologies, we figure out how they can benefit society, and at the same time, try to predict and try to understand the underlying risk that's associated with them. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you to my panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have any additional questions, please feel free to come up.